I've tried to place your accent in. <laughs> um, I grew up in Wakefields. Ah, um, <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew it was close. Yeah, I knew it was close. <laughs> I've since moved around a lot, so it's almost disappeared. Yeah, no, it hasn't. <laughs> it hasn't. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Um, and you said you were Halifax. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah so yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah no, I lived there until I until I went to university. Then I went. To, yeah. Uh, yeah, then I went to Bristol, and then uh, I've been in Oxford since the middle of the eighties. So. Right. Uh, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, still still value my roots up uh, up that way. <laughs> nice. I listened to, um, you know, Simon Armitage's podcast. Oh, yeah. The Parrot Laureate has gone to the shed. I listened to that and he has a good phrase where he says, if someone says, you know, what's your accent? He says, I haven't got an accent. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yeah. <laughs> Which I quite like. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> good stuff. I hope you enjoyed that bit of bonding over being from a similar area. You were listening to me, Emily Anderson, talking to Dr. Stephen Kershaw. And Steve is my guest for this episode of Unfinishing. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, Unfinishing is the podcast about things that are incomplete, abandoned, or not public. Steve is with me today because I heard him on a different podcast, which many of you may know. It's called You're Dead to Me, and it's actually really good. So if you haven't heard it, there is a link in the show notes to the episode that Steve did. Steve was on You're Dead to Me talking about Atlantis, the legendary lost land. And he was explaining how Atlantis first appears in a work known as the Critias Dialogue, which is by the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Steve mentioned that not only is the Critias unfinished, but it actually ends mid-sentence, at which point my ears very much pricked up and I thought I've got to get him on unfinishing. Obviously that's mainly because the subject is so perfect, but also because Steve just came across as a really nice bloke. And true to form, Steve did very kindly agree to talk to me. Some quick Dr. Steve facts before we get to the interview proper. He's spent the last 40 years travelling the world of the ancient Greeks and Romans, both physically and in his head. He's been a classics tutor for about 30 years, teaching complete beginners all the way to PhD students. And he currently works at the Oxford University Department for Continuing Education. Steve has also written a ton of books, and as it happens, we talk about his next book towards the end of our conversation. I've linked to a couple of the existing highlights in the show notes, but of particular relevance to our subject today is Steve's brief history of Atlantis, Plato's ideal state. And that includes his translation of the Critias, which he reads an extract from later in this episode. And it's also got lots of other brilliant stuff about Atlantis. All it remains for me to say is that if you have an unfinished, abandoned or private project that you'd like to talk about, you can get in touch via unfinishing.pod at gmail.com or I'm on Instagram at unfinishingpod or Twitter at truebagglerag. Okay, so I've seen on your website that you've described yourself as an expert on dead languages and the people who don't speak them anymore. And more than anything else, I just really like that phrase. But I, I did want to ask you about the relationship between those two things. So I guess if you're an expert in that area, the language and the people presumably go hand in hand. They do, I think, in a way. I, I think the you know language and uh, uh, almost like national characteristics can be can be quite heavily intertwined you know mm. the, the way you the, the language 
it's a circular thing, but it, it determines the way that you think and the way that you think determines the language that you that you have. I think and I think the languages that I'm particularly familiar with, with with Latin and Greek, are very different. The, the you know, Romans are quite different from from Greeks in, in in many many ways, and and as are their languages in a way. So the means in which they express themselves, in some ways, correlate to the characteristics that they have as as people. Greek is a much more, I think, much more sort of fluid language. It's you can you can you can think more perhaps more subtly i think in greek mm. than you than you can in latin which is which is not to say that latin is crude and and clumpy but uh, greek has is is full of uh, nuance and potential so very suited in a way to to philosophy and uh, and that kind of thinking as well i mean i guess it comes back to the, the idea that's been floating around for ages about to some extent the means that you have to express yourself, shape thought. So it's almost like the language comes first. It could be. I mean, I, I, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't delved into the yeah. <laughs> into the studies of that. But I, I think that's why that the, the the Greek, certainly the Greek language, allows allows the people to express themselves and to express, I think, philosophical ideas uh, with with great subtlety. But I find that I find that really interesting, to be quite honest. And how did you first start learning Latin and Greek? I know that it's quite unusual for classics to be taught in schools now. So could you tell me how your interest in them first started? Yeah, I was. it came at primary school, actually, mm. where it was blissful. And in the, the last sort of 20 minutes of every day, they would just read to us. And, yeah. and that was just gorgeous to be, you know, to be read to is a beautiful thing. And a, a new person showed up in the school who I guess must have been a classics graduate doing teaching practice or something like that. And read to us just bits out of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And as a 10 year old boy, I just thought, oh, this is totally great. <laughs> you know, it's all gods and monsters and heroes and fighting and uh, and what have you. And I, I, I mean, I don't remember going home and, and enthusing about it to my parents, but I must have done because my grandpa bought me a copy of the Iliad in the, uh, in the Penguin translation. And I, I kind of read it with my torch under the bedclothes, you know, and, and I was, uh, uh, as you do, and, and I was, <laughs> I was away. And then I went to if you like sort of down to earth northern boys grammar school in Halifax in Yorkshire, where you know they, they didn't give you any choice, they made you do Latin, mm. and, and and I was up for that because I'd I'd got into this world of classical things, and so I was it was like nobody else wanted to do Latin except me. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, bring it on, bring it on, and, uh, and and then there was the opportunity to do Greek. So, uh, so and 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 these things just stuck with me I, I i loved studying those things and uh, and and so I, I ultimately that enabled me to to pursue that love and to go on and uh, uh, and, and study at university and and ultimately I'm very very fortunate i think to be able to build a career out of those mm. two languages and how does reading these texts in the original languages differ from reading them in translation i presume it opens up massive amounts if you're reading it in the original yes it does 
when you read the things in the in the original language, uh, much of it is poetry, for instance. Mm. So it comes with all the the subtlety and nuance and and rhythm and and sound and and playing with sound, playing with words, playing with double meanings or multiple meanings in words that it's very hard to get across in in a translation. You know, in a, a Greek word may have several different meanings that are all operating at the same time but if you're you know you're producing a translation of it you, you can only commit to one and so so to be inside the language gives you the greater subtlety the nuance of of meaning that i mean there are still wonderful wonderful translations around but it's but they can't they can't ever capture everything that's that's operating in that uh, in that world of the the greek or the roman uh, writers and you mentioned there as well that you were initially read to to access mm. this world. Is that how the text would originally have been passed around? Yeah, it would. Yeah. Many of these things were were produced for public recital or mm. public recitation. Uh, Herodotus wrote this fantastic history of essentially the Greek and Persian wars and won acclaim for, for his recitations of them at, uh, at Olympia, for instance. So at uh, this time in the in the 5th century BC, you're in a world, they haven't invented the book yet. <laughs> so, you know, they have you know, papyrus and scrolls and, and, and literacy. But but fundamentally, oral delivery is, is the way that the, the yeah. vast majority of this happens. The poems of, of Homer, for instance, were, I mean, not just recited, but sung by travelling bards who had extraordinary powers of memory. You that's know, what you, I was just you, thinking. Yeah, if it wasn't written down, <laughs> that's right. You, you have to remember all of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, you, and and they would improvise around it yeah. in a way, but but fundamentally, they'd have their core structures and and commit the entire thing to memory. It's astonishing to us now. I think it's a very good party trick. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> and, and it kind of was because, for instance, in Homer's Iliad. It just sort of starts off the first book, the first chapter, if you like, mm. uh, sets the scene. And the second chapter is, is simply a massive catalogue of all the fighters who were in the Trojan right. War on the Greek and Trojan side. And and I think this is a, it's a kind of a party trick. The, the bard, the performer of this, would produce this prodigious feat of memory to the enormous, I think, delight and uh, and, and uh, of, of, of an audience that was incredibly impressed. Yes. You know, it's, in, in many ways, people find it really weird when they when they read it now. You think, why do I need to know all this stuff? But it's super important. And for someone to stand in front of you and sort of deliver this catalogue in verse for two <laughs> two hours <laughs> is it's pretty impressive, you know. <laughs> And I imagine that this might be quite a difficult question to answer. Um, you talked about when you first started getting into mm. classics that it was about the soldiers and the fighting and the gods yeah. and the monsters. Yeah. Is that still what you find appealing and inspiring about these texts, uh, or has it has it developed? No, it's developed. I'm more nuanced. <laughs> I'm more nuanced now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, those those things are still very much part of it. But uh, mm. no, I, I I read those uh, I read those things very very differently now. But I, I say at, at core, I think I'm still inspired by, if you like, by the sheer relevance of all of. This. Mm. You know, this is there's a timeless element of this. Uh, for instance, I, I I went to see a performance of Euripides' Medea up in London mm. just the other day, 
which was one of the most powerful pieces of drama I've ever seen. Mm. And, 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 it, and it deals with all manner of um, sort of, you know, issues and themes and, and things that are very, still very much of the now. So this, I, I think this, these things, you know, I, I still like my, you know, my warriors and my <laughs> and my monsters, but uh, but I, I like the I like the nuance, I like the relevance, I like the way that it it still speaks through to us, even from two thousand years ago. You're, you're you're still getting powerful, relevant, thought provoking things all the time. It's often very moving. I think. Yeah. It reminds me of a bit in um, the History Boys, right, <laughs> where, yeah. where the teacher is explaining kind of the value or what he gets out of reading poetry. I think, and he says it's like a hand reaching out and taking yours from you know another time or another context or another place. I, I think that's really well put. It, yeah. it is. I, I I certainly feel a very a very strong direct connection i think with those with those texts and the mm. and and the, and, and the characters within them they if you, if you kind of live in this world <laughs> like i do in a sense you know they become your your friends your colleagues <laughs> uh, as as you go we're here today to talk about a piece of writing by plato called the critias dialogue which is an incomplete work but i wondered if we could start a bit more slowly than that assuming no knowledge definitely for me um and could you just tell me a little bit first about who Plato was and what the dialogues are? Yeah, absolutely. So Plato was a Greek philosopher. Uh, actually, Plato was a nickname. His actual name was Aristocles, but, uh, but Plato is in fact a nickname. In Greek, it means broad, wide. And they say it was a nickname because either because he, he, his style was very broad or he had a really wide forehead. <laughs> so it was one of the two. Uh, but uh, but he's, a, he's, a, he's a Greek philosopher who is, who is interested in, in morality and politics particularly. It's, it's kind of relevant for an unfinished discussion, if you like, mm. because pinning down with uttermost precision when he was born, when he died, uh, and what have you is very difficult, but mm. broadly speaking, he he was born somewhere in the region of 428 to 427 BCE, and died in 348 to 347, uh, pretty much there. But there's scholarly dispute, mm. as there is about his birthplace. Um, it could be Athens, probably was Athens, but there is a tradition that he was born on the island of Aegina, which is uh, near to Athens. And so he was he was born in a really interesting time in Athenian history. So he was when he was alive, when he was a young man and a child, he grew up during the, the terrible Peloponnesian War that was fought between Athens and Sparta, which Athens ultimately lost when he was a young man. Uh, he then went traveling. And uh, oh, he made a number of travels, including to Sicily to talk with other philosophers, came back to Athens, founded a philosophical school called the Academy, and then and ultimately died at Athens. So, yes, around the middle of the fourth century uh, mm -hmm. BCE or BC, if you prefer. So, so that's essentially his his life, and he's he's one of the one of the mighty thinkers of the world, mm. if you like. Yeah. And and he puts his ideas across, not in sort of great 
tracts of text, but he he presents the ideas in the form of dialogues between different people, which which allows him to explore the ideas i think so that people can interrupt and ask questions or or agree or disagree and 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 make their own statements so so essentially much of his philosophical work is is not it's not presented as oh i think a b c Mm. d and therefore e it's well let's have a chat about this or let's think about that what do you think about this well i kind of disagree and it's that kind of flavor to his work so it's it's and it's a and it's a very engaging vehicle, I think, for his thought. It's always a good read. In the course of those dialogues, so he's exploring these different ideas and kind of having discussions about them. Does it become clear what his own opinion is over the yeah. course? Of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, and it's interesting again that in uh, he he doesn't he, and he doesn't cast himself in these dialogues mm. either. Uh, he his his main, if you like, vehicle for expressing his ideas is Socrates who was his teacher. So it's Socrates, who is is the is usually the main man who's at the centre of these dialogues, uh, exploring and, and, and sort of floating ideas and discussing them with, uh, with various other characters. And what are we talking here in terms of amount of dialogue produced? Is it lots of text that we still have? Yeah, <laughs> there yeah. are lots. Um, I, I I haven't added them up, but there's <laughs> there's plenty. There is a lifetime's work yeah. of uh, yeah. uh, of of dialogues. Yes, in, in which his ideas you know evolve and change and uh, and and develop too. But yeah, you're looking at uh, an uh, an enormous body of work, really. That's mm. uh, yeah, the life's work of a, a, a great mind. So going to the Critias specifically, then. Yeah. Could you give me a bit of background on that one and maybe a little bit of a rough outline of what it talks about? Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is the, the, the Critias was going to be part of a, a trilogy of dialogues, but it's only the second one and it's not finished. And and what happens, the dramatic setting is this, is that Socrates and and, and a group of people are talking at a festival, which is set, the dramatic setting for this is roughly around the time that Plato uh, himself was born. But Socrates and a man called Timaeus and Critias and Hermocrates, uh, amongst others, are, are having a chat and they're talking about the ideal state. And by this time in, in Plato's work, he's already, if you like, constructed the ideal state in his great work, The Republic. And uh, so what they do is that they, they start this conversation and they sort of rehearse the ideal state and, and they, they just remind us of what it's like. Uh, to be honest, I would not like to live in Plato's ideal state. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody else would really, but Plato. But but anyway, but but these is the people in the dialogue like it. They think super okay. and, and they say, do we like it? And then I said, yeah, we really, really, really like it. But And then Socrates says, Lovely. I'm, I'm happy with that. But I want to see, I want to stress test it. I want to see how this state would perform in a time of crisis, particularly in a time of war. And this prompts the character Critias to say, ah, well, that reminds me of a, he's already an old man. Mm. That reminds me of a story that I, I heard my grandpa tell, who got it from this uh, Athenian lawgiver called Solon, who got it from some Egyptian priests when he went uh, traveling, about a huge war 
that was fought between Athens, which in the dialogues is, is kind of, it's, it's a kind of imaginary Athens, but which very much personifies the ideal state itself. Mm. So there was this fantastic, enormous war between Athens and the island of Atlantis, which was who were if you're like, invaders from outside of Greece, they come from beyond, they come from the Atlantic Ocean on their huge island there. And in this conflict, because the Athenians are the ideal state, and in many ways, the people of Atlantis are the anti-ideal state, the Athenians win, the Athenians defeat the Atlanteans. And at that point, Zeus, king of the gods, sinks Atlantis in a, it's a literally cataclysmic <laughs> uh, event because uh, cataclysmos in Greek means a flood. So there's a huge ah, flood cool. and uh, Atlantis disappears between beneath the waves of the Atlantic Ocean, never to be seen or, or written of again. <laughs> and, uh, and actually Athens is destroyed in that uh, similar cataclysm and has to, has to reappear. So, so that's, the, that's the basis of the story. And, and all these guys are amazed at mm. this not because it's an amazing story but none of them have ever heard this tale before which is not surprising because plato has has made it up <laughs> but uh but uh, it's uh, uh but nevertheless they're, they're amazed that they've never heard this this before yeah. and uh, and so and so they embark on this on this discussion and uh, the, the initial discussions happen actually in a dialogue called the timaeus mm -hmm. which is a ferociously challenging piece of philosophical work but they they finish that and and this guy Timaeus has his say and then Critias comes on board and starts in his dialogue to talk about Athens as the ideal state this if you like primordial antediluvian Athens and Atlantis itself and this is where the great story of Atlantis has uh, has come from and what has, and what he does is to give these these extraordinary uh, descriptions of the island and its capital city and uh, and its inhabitants and and also which a lot of the time which people forget also about Athens about how mm. wonderful that is too Okay, and we've already mentioned that the dialogue is unfinished, but could you tell me specifically how it ends? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's I mean it, it's wondrous. So so Critias tells us about Atlantis itself, which is this massive island. It's it's mm. the size of two continents in the Atlantic Ocean, and he, he describes that it has the most amazing natural resources. The the people themselves produce incredible engineering projects of irrigation systems and canals and uh, uh, and so on and, and they construct I mean numerous cities on the island but he describes the capital city which is uh, has a, a great palace in the middle and uh, built around concentric rings of land and and water and it has all the facilities you could possibly want and it's connected to the sea and uh, and it's rich and dripping in gold and silver and uh, and what have you and they have all the all the crops they need all the natural resources but the uh, these atlanteans are it's not enough mm. you know they want more they are in fact not an ideal state it's an ideal state gone bad they are uh, essentially far as i say far too much is never enough for an atlantean yeah. so they invade greece and as i said they they come to grief they they're defeated in this and, and and it's at this point that we've we've heard all about 
the city and its state, and we hear about then the the, the final dis- destruction of it. And and, and this, I'll, I'll just give it you if, if you like in my translation. This is how the dialogue ends. Yeah, absolutely. So Zeus is going to tell the gods why he's done this. And, and it goes like this. Zeus, the god of gods who reigns according to law and is able to see such things, perceived that a fine race had degenerated into a miserable state and made a decision to discipline them so that they might be brought to their senses and become morally harmonious. So he summoned all the deities to his own most glorious residence, which stands at the center of the cosmos and looks out over everything which participates in creation. And when they had assembled, he said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so incredibly unsatisfying. (laughs) (laughs) It so is. You know, it just stops, you know, in mid-sentence and unfinished work in an unfinished sentence. It's a beautiful piece of unfinishedness. (laughs) <laughs> so why are we missing the ending what happened there it's well that's that's the big question i think you know there's no evidence at all that plato wrote any more than that right you know it, it just cuts off there doesn't seem to be any we're not missing something here it's just it just stops you know it was going to be a trilogy so we're missing not just half the critias but a whole other dialogue yeah. as well and there's been so much discussion about this. Was it, you know, loss of patience, perhaps? Was it mm. loss of confidence? Mm. You know, we never get to hear about this war. <laughs> uh, you know, has he has he just come in a way to a philosophical and political dead end yeah. with it? You know, has he just sort of bailed out and abandoned ship on the project and, and simply decided, you know, Maybe a lack of self-confidence, but, you know, is mm. it? I, I don't really think this is going anywhere. I, I just need to write something else that's going to get yeah. my ideas across <laughs> much, much more clearly, which in a sense he does, because the, the next work that he produces is another you know, enormous dialogue called The Laws, in which he sort of explores these mm. ideas. But but it's, it's slightly mystifying, to be honest, yeah. as, as to why he simply stops. You know, it's, it's just chopped right right off like that and, and then <laughs> and, and no more and, and he never comes back to it he sort of invents Atlantis and he, and he never never yeah. comes back to it and and his, his star student Aristotle was was quite nice he said you know he who he who created it also destroyed it <laughs> you know it's uh, in that kind of way so he, so he just sort of almost like sinks Atlantis beneath the waves and boom you know okay I'm and done with that I'll, I'll go somewhere else <laughs> So you mentioned there that in his next work he explores some similar ideas. Do you, do we see some of the ideas being recycled at least in later work? Yes, uh, they do. I mean, as I say, because he has this major interest in in the ideal state and how it should be constituted and 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 how it should work and what its uh, social structures should be like. It's something that preoccupies him quite a lot. So he's he doesn't, if you like, thematically he's 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 still interested in these yeah. political ideas, but it just seems that the this prospective trilogy of things is is a bit of a dead end for him. I think. Yeah. And then do we have evidence or information or guesses about the story of what happened to the Critias after it had not been finished? So was it, did other people read it? How has it passed on? What was? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the, the transmission of classical texts is a, is a tricky thing, really, because mm. it's, you know, they, they must have been transcribed at the time. 
but we we have none of those you know we don't have plato's own manuscript so this is you know it's transfer it's transcribed it's, it's also performed but it's transcribed it's disseminated to uh, you know libraries and private collections yeah. within the ancient world and they continue to be copied and as you move yeah. into the roman period you have libraries all over the roman empire sort of if you like at the fall of the roman empire in the west you still have Byzantium in the east, where mm. there are libraries and, and a tradition of copying of, of texts. Yeah. And so, all, I mean, all of these, they have a very precarious existence. Mm. If they can survive to the invention of printing, they're going to be all right. Okay. <laughs> but many, many, many texts are, are lost. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and and we know of their existence because other works refer to them. You know what I mean? Right. So they, but many, many works are lost. You know, the great tragic writers, you know, there's a, a comic writer called Menander who's mm. who wrote over a hundred plays. We've just got one complete one. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, that yeah. kind of thing. And indeed, within those texts, because these things are being hand copied, people make mistakes in the copying too. So not only are we working with, it's like, it's like trying to do a jigsaw where almost all the pieces are missing and probably half of the pieces come from a different jigsaw anyway. <laughs> and, you know, and then half of those are broken. So, you know, so, so there's a lot of dispute amongst scholars very often about what the actual Greek or Roman text should read. Yes. And yeah. they... It's just quite interesting when it when it gets particularly difficult to translate in Greek, then all of a sudden there's all sorts of argument between scholars <laughs> who want to want to change it and think it should yeah, be something else. Sure. But uh, so so we we constantly work sort of in that in a world of uncertainties. I think yeah. of, uh, as as classicists. And this is brilliant for me because, in comparison, I think to perhaps more modern text or or even things like you know you mentioned a jigsaw with pieces missing yeah. and. A jigsaw with pieces missing would not yeah. be as highly valued <laughs> as, yeah. as a full jigsaw, right? And and similarly, I think with perhaps like modern novels. Yeah. So I'm really interested in the fact that it would seem that within the world of classics and their study that unfinished things or incomplete things or partially missing things are, are valued much more highly than perhaps they would be in other contexts. I, I think so. And, and in a way they have to be because, mm. <laughs> because they're all we've yeah. got. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I think of it this way, actually, I have a, sort of explain it. And it, <clears throat> we were talking about the languages earlier on and the, yeah. the Greek language has a number of what the, all languages have them, but uh, the Greek language has a number of moods they're called. Okay. So it has, one is, is called the indicative, which you, which you use mm -hmm. when you state something as a fact. Yeah. You might be lying, but you're presenting it as a fact. <laughs> yeah. uh, it has another mood called the subjunctive, which is about potential and possibilities. You know, if that, then the other. You know, you know, if if I if I go to Athens, then I will talk philosophy with Plato. And they have another one that's called the optative, which is even more remote. You know, if in the likelihood that I might go to Athens, I probably won't. But then, I, I, you know, on that occasion, I might just talk with Plato for a bit. Uh, right. So, so that you can you can have all these degrees in possibility. Yeah. 
And, and we have to live in that world, I think. Mm -hmm. We have to live in the world of the subjunctive and the optative. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually like my dog. <laughs> and I have, I have a wonderful English Springer Spaniel who lives almost all of her life in the optative mood. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I, I want to go for a walk. Oh, I, I might, you know, we might be going for a walk now. It might be supper time. And, and you know, and all the time I want this to happen. It might happen. It could happen. It's, yeah. you know, I'd love it if it did. And then every now and again, Actually, we do. I give her supper, and we do, we go out for a walk, yeah. and she goes into the indicative mood. You know, it's like <laughs> this is this is real. This is now. This is good. I'm, I'm having this time, and but it's only like two percent of her life. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of it is is is, is spent wanting and, and wishing, and and classicists are like they're like English Springer Spaniels. You know, they're they're they're, they're waiting for their for their suppers <laughs> and their walks, uh, and and just every now and again, <laughs> the classical world will 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 let them do that. I really hope that's how you explain it to your students because that's an excellent analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so coming back to the Critia sense, what has been the impact, do you think, of the fact that we're missing the ending? Has it led to, I mean, I guess like if you live in that world, in that mood, there is a lot of interpretation, guesswork, being free with the text, does it lend itself to that kind of treatment? It, it does indeed, yes. I think it's essentially what's happened is that the you know, the, the Atlantis story and, and the descriptions of Atlantis and the Critias particularly mm. mean, because it's a, an unfinished work, I think, is it means you can do whatever you like with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so people have sort of free reign, really, to and, and have accepted that free reign to, to take this story and to to do with it whatever they mm. wish, really. So it opens... Uh, it kind of opens this world of possibilities to to Plato's texts, you know, to multiple possibilities of understanding, multiple possibilities of misunderstanding as well. I yeah. Think. And in what ways has it been perhaps misunderstood? Well, it's 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 really interesting. I, I think is that partly in in a in a very very strong drive to to find it. You know, where is this place? Yeah. Because it's yeah. it's so convincing, and and Critias keeps banging on all the way through. He says, it's a true story, this, you know, it's a true, it really is a true story. And and his descriptions of Atlantis are so convincing, uh, very detailed. You can construct the capital city quite easily from his descriptions. So it sent people on a, on a quest of, of perhaps forgetting why Plato wrote this dialogue in the first place, to go and try and find this mysterious lost island or lost continent. And, and the, the quest for that over the centuries has been extraordinary. I mean, Plato is a is a major figure in in intellectual history. I think so. His authority is amazing, and one thing that happens, for instance, is that when when Europe becomes aware of the existence of the New World through Columbus, then all of a sudden there's a huge problem because this isn't me mentioned in the Bible. How do we deal with this? Well, ah, maybe Plato's Atlantis that was kind of out there could there be you know we like plato yeah. we, you know we might yeah. be christians but we like plato as well and you know so could we plug plato's atlantis into this kind of world and these new discoveries that, that will mm. perhaps make us feel a little bit more comfortable about mm. about these extraordinary new discoveries uh, particularly as these people that we found on the other side of the atlantic ocean are wealthy quite sophisticated and so on so oh, maybe maybe they're survivors from atlantis yeah. so so you get these these kind of things you can you can manipulate these things in 
in all sorts of different ways and 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 people do <laughs> you know yeah. they, they really yeah. do and then i guess this is a question about your interpretation yeah. of it what do you think the critias was trying to convey was there a message in particular yeah i think there is uh, and i think i think it's this is that in plato's own there at the time he was writing this uh, athens was starting to become an imperial power again it was it was becoming quite aggressive and i think fundamentally these the the critias and 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 the time years before it are are warnings to his own people mm. they're, they're they're couched in so that he's not preaching but he's yeah. uh he's sort of making these connections so his his atlantean invaders who come in and get defeated are very very similar to for instance the the persian invaders who invaded greece at the beginning of the 5th century bc this time from the east but they they get defeated uh, as well athens in its own day had imperial pretensions had invaded sicily and been catastrophically defeated as well so it's essentially i think he's he's trying to impart a warning to his own people that that, that these kind of imperialist ventures are ultimately fruitless and self-defeating and and that although these atlanteans seem to be on the surface superficially they're happy they're rich they're prosperous and so on once you scratch the surface underneath there there's there's this sort of (laughs) really nasty imperialist (laughs) yeah dominating kind of uh, society that that plato is warning against so he's he's, he's saying look guys do not be like the inhabitants of Atlantis. It's if you do, it's not going to work out well. Which is ironic, given that how <laughs> what you just mentioned about kind of exploration and imperialism and how it tied in with that. I, absolutely, <laughs> I, I, I think so. People have because Atlantis has become in many ways whatever people would like to make mm. of it, and uh, yeah, and, and boy, do they make some stuff of it. <laughs> <laughs> I read an argument that you could look at Plato's account of Atlantis as being a little bit like a historical novel, but that without that familiarity with the genre, such as a historical novel, people took it seriously um, or interpreted it to be literally true. And I just kind of wanted to ask you what you thought about the argument or what, what you thought about why it has been interpreted yeah. as, as literal. I, I think I think there's, there's, there's much of value in that, to be honest. Mm. It's because, as I say, it's presented as a historical thing and as i said critias keeps saying guys you know, i'm telling you a true a true story this. but but this is essentially this is what the greeks do you know they they mm. a lot of the time they they write their fiction in a historical setting and and i think so in a sense it is like a a historical novel and readers of historical novels value historical veracity as well that they want the details to be perfect from their authors and, and and Plato is like this so he's so he presents you so I mean so does so does Homer in the Iliad you know the Trojan War deeply convincing in in the way it's presented and and so is this so it's uh, absolutely he's uh, here he is presenting you with in, in a sense a, a historical novel if you like mm-hmm. it's the 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 details are, are there and perfect but it's and I think it what he's doing is is he's creating a fiction in order to tell truths. Yeah. I think that's really interesting too. Yeah. So he's he says that I, I can I can invent lies, but within these lies are embedded 
truths that I want to impart. And and yeah. I'm you know, I, I I don't usually like telling lies, but I'm comfortable with telling lies if there's a positive spin off. So it so yeah. it's uh, so I'm I'm happy to create falsehood in order to impart truth. And I think that's what he's doing here too. And that's uh interesting word choice, like lies and falsehood, whereas yeah. we would we would say like fiction. <laughs> yes, it's, it's uh, I, I, that might be a translation thing actually. Because yeah. you, you sometimes find different translations of his. Yeah. The, the the word he, he uses a lot in Greek is pseudos, as in pseudo uh-huh, yeah. in English, and, and different translators will translate that as falsehood or lies. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's and and it the Greek word encompasses a number of those different different meanings if you like it's so i can i can say something that is not literally true it's pudos yeah. but it, it, it yeah. is it has truth and and value embedded within it yeah and you mentioned as well this repeated assertion that turns up in the text that it's a true story yeah is that could that be kind of a sly joke? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it is. It's uh, yeah. you know, it's it's uh, Critias <laughs> doth protest too much. Yeah, thinks, you know, <laughs> exactly. it's that it's that kind of thing. You know, and he and that they do discuss it, and it's and I think there's others there's there's other hints within the the dialogue. As I say, originally that this this tale is supposed to have come down to us ultimately from Egypt, but simply the fact that it comes from Egypt is in the Greek tradition, if you like, the Greek context, it means it's a dodgy tale. Okay. You know, right. uh, so Egyptian tales, uh, Phoenician tales as well, that the, the Phoenicians are uh, notorious liars uh, and so on. So these, these kind of, if you like, mm. tales of alien peoples are of their very nature yeah. dodgy, false, yeah. tricky. So there were clues in there. I think so. Yeah. And I have to ask you, just because this is a podcast about unfinished things, yeah. and most people do have their own unfinished things, do you have your own unfinished projects, books? I know you're also a musician, that kind of thing. <laughs> yes, inevitably. I think uh, <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I perhaps like to think of them as work in progress rather than <laughs> unfinished projects. Uh, yeah. But uh, yes, yeah, I, I always. I mean, I have... Uh, yeah, I have a new book that I'm working on at the moment, uh, oh, which, which which is obviously unfinished, but it, it yeah. needs it needs to be <laughs> finished by uh, uh, about eighteen months from now. Uh, so I, I guess that's an unfinished project, but it's it's it's, it's more work in progress. It, I have a deadline, so hopefully it will yeah. be finished. Uh, <laughs> same same with musical projects, I, I think, because I, I I play jazz double bass and and i and i write music so i I, at any one time i'll have all sorts of different if you like fragments of pieces of Mm. music and compositions and uh uh, projects that uh that are ongoing or on hold or 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 need to be brought together in order to to finish so i think in a sense in in my life i i always have unfinished business and i always will i think Mm. yeah And, and actually i don't mind that yeah do you still see them as, if you were to abandon a project, do you think you'd still see that as a, a kind of a valuable thing? I think so. I th- yes, I do, because because a lot of this is about, I think maybe a lot of what I do maybe is about, is about process and mm. not outcome. I mean, with some things there has to be an outcome, you know, there's, but the process in itself as a, you know, as a writer or a musician or something is important. It's part of your 
your growth is what you do. So I'm, I'm and it happens writing a book a lot, actually, is that yeah. you'll produce something and there might very well be too much and you've got to cut stuff out and throw it away. Yeah. So the, the stuff yeah. that, and, and you think, oh, God, you know, I worked for three weeks on that and I can't <laughs> yeah. use it, you know, but, yeah. but nevertheless, I worked for three weeks on that. I I, I, I gained benefit from that. I, I I learned things. I developed skills, and and, and what have you. So, uh, I think in, in those sort of creative areas, I, I think in many ways, even a rejected project in the end is not a wasted one mm. because you've been through a process that will hopefully stand you in better stead the next time you've got something that might come to fruition, and it might come to fruition better as a result yes, of, yeah. of of what you didn't quite get off the ground in a way yeah can i ask you what your new book is or are you not allowed to talk about oh it? no I, I can it's <laughs> it's going to be a a life a, a biography of the spartan general lysander uh, and it'll be published by yale university press in due course Fantastic. so so really yeah a really nice a sort of uh, yeah a, a biographical work about uh, a guy who was around at the same time as plato was actually mm. so, and um he was a yeah a, a mighty general who who came from quite obscure origins in in Sparta, but essentially he was the guy who won the Peloponnesian War, the great war between Athens and Sparta. He secured Sparta's final victories. Not enough written about him actually, and uh, yeah. uh, he ended up being worshipped as a god amongst other things, and, right. uh, going a bit rogue and then <laughs> <laughs> dying in battle. So lots of spoiler alerts, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's him. He's a great character. Super. Okay. Well, if people want to learn more about Lysander, they should definitely go and buy your new book. <laughs> yeah. If the people want to learn more about the classics in general or the Critias, where would you recommend that they start? Oh, all sorts of place. I mean, I started with, you know, with Homer, with the Iliad mm. and the Odyssey, and there are great translations now, modern translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are stupendous works. So uh, in many ways, that's, uh, they're great. You know, go straight to the fountainhead <laughs> of, yeah. of those and, and, and see where that takes you. These days, there's a, we were talking about sort of historical novels and, and there are these yeah. kind of, not so much historical, but sort of mythico novels, mm. which are rewritings of, yes. of Greek mythical stories from different perspectives yeah. by the likes of, uh, you know, Pat Barker and Natalie Haynes yeah. and, and so on. And, and I think they're very good. I, I get a number of people coming to my online courses who've been inspired by, mm. by those books, I think, um, which are yeah terrific, I think. And that's almost like become a sort of genre of its own now. Uh, yes, lots, yeah. lots and lots of good stuff. It's terrific stuff. And there's there's the, uh, the works of, of fine scholars. You know, Mary Beard is a great place to go. I think mm -hmm. to you know her work, her writings, her books are, are scholarly, accessible, and uh, would sort of dip you in. And 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 I think once once you once you've uh, jumped off the cliff and splashed into the waters, <laughs> then uh, you know you can swim where you like. Maybe even to Atlantis. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> need some diving equipment. Though. <laughs> well there you have it an absolutely fascinating insight from steve i thought so thank you very much to him for that as you can probably tell from the recording i really really enjoyed the conversation i actually came away from it so buzzing that it took me several hours and a trip to a favorite cafe to calm down I've never properly explored classical literature or philosophy, but I think I might do now. 
And aside from anything else, I love it that someone like Plato abandoned a piece of work, as well as just the mystery of having so little idea why he made that decision. I also really enjoyed Steve's explanation of the different moods in the Greek language. I'll certainly be thinking more about the optative and trying to spot maybe in life in general when it's good to be like a spaniel. <laughs>